0: It is really good to be here. It's, it's always good to be here. I'm, I'm grateful for this church. Um, you guys have prayed for our ministry for many years, supported us, um, and that's been a, a great encouragement to me. But every time I come here, I, I, you know, as, as I get, get to meet um, many of you uh, who are a part of this church, and to see your faithfulness um, in the gospel has really encouraged me in the work that we do. Um, on the college campus. So thank you for being the church. Thank you for your faith, which I know spurs you towards prayer for me and so many other missionaries. So um, I want to read from uh, Jonah chapter two um, this morning, but before I do, uh, a quick kind of summary of what happens in in, in chapter one. And uh, in chapter one, Jonah, who is a prophet, is called by God to go to Nineveh and to speak against them. Uh, And the Ninevites, uh, they were not exemplary people. Um, They not only committed heinous crimes against humanity, they were uh, actual threats to the existence of God's people. Nevertheless, God calls Jonah uh, there to Nineveh. And for reasons we'll find out later in chapter four, He goes the other way. Instead of going to Nineveh, he goes to Tarshish, or at least he sets out to go to Tarshish. And there's a great storm, Um, and uh, we, we read that not only is Jonah running away from Nineveh, more precisely he is running away from the presence of the Lord. And this journey of running from God is a downward spiral. And when it ultimately runs its course, we end up with an existential moment, learning the hard way that running from God never ends well. For Jonah, he ends up not only with an existential crisis, hating himself, he ends up in the bottom of the ocean. Now, what happens when you jump into the ocean, when you dive straight into the deep sea? You drown, and you die. Except that's not what happened uh, to Jonah, um, as we'll read now. Um, Beginning with, actually, the last uh, verse of chapter one. Uh, This is uh, God's word from spoken through uh, the prophet Jonah. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is God's word. Let me, let me pray for us. Our Father, I, I simply pray uh, the prayer that my brother Chris just prayed, that we would understand uh, that salvation is from you, that salvation is from our sins into life in Christ. Help us to see that this morning. Amen. So, um, if you're a fan of Flannery O'Connor, you will appreciate her kind of sardonic tone. Uh, many of her writings are, are quite dark and disturbing. Um, her novel, The Violent Bear It Away, is a dark and disturbing tale of a young teenager named Francis. Tarwater. Now, the story begins with the death of Francis's, and I will kind of spoil it a little bit, but uh, the the story begins with the death of Francis's great-uncle, old Tarwater, Mason Tarwater, uh, who once kidnapped Francis and raised him, really brainwashed him in the middle of nowhere, to be a prophet. Now, his great-uncle was himself a self-ordained prophet, and he Kidnapped Francis, raised him to take his uh, to follow in his footsteps to one day be a prophet. And before his death, the self-ordained uh, old Tarwater uh, leaves two requests to his nephew. One is to give him a proper Christian burial. To dig a uh, to dig a hole ten feet deep so that the dogs won't get into his body, bury him there and most importantly, to put a cross on top of his grave so that he would be resurrected on Judgment Day. And the second uh, request is to make sure that his, uh, his dim-witted cousin, uh, Bishop, would receive a proper Christian baptism so that his soul would be redeemed and saved. Well, um, upon, uh, at the beginning of the story, upon the great uncle's death, um, and confronted by what seems to be demonic voices, Francis does kind of what Jonah does. He seeks immediately to escape the destiny his great uncle has set out for him and to subvert both wishes of the Christian burial and the Christian baptism. Um, but uh, he, as he seeks to subvert these things, first by burning down the house where his great uncle uh, was buried, and second by drowning his cousin, not only does he fail to thwart his uh, great uncle's two wishes, he actually ends up fulfilling them. Now, I'll spare you some details, but I do want to say how striking I found uh, the existential crisis of the young Francis Tarwater. To, and most of the story actually has him dialoguing with another uncle, a v- quite different uncle. Um, and, uh, but for this young, Tarwater, who for all intents and purposes is is an orphan, Uh, to simultaneously recall the haunted words of his dead uncle and to hear the competing voice of the devil, to spurn the ideology of one uncle of religious fanaticism and uh, another uncle of secular atheism, Francis inevitably experiences the grace of God, not despite his active rebellion, but in fact, through the violent nature of his rebellion, marked by fire and water. Um, Kelly Gerald comments on both this story and Matthew chapter 11, verse 12, which is um, where the title derives, uh, The Violent Bear It Away. And he says, when God's grace comes into contact with an errant life. A violent revelation occurs. Falsehood and heresy are burnt off and the sinner then sees the truth clearly. Those who suffer this spiritual violence bear the kingdom of God with them as they go through the world. Now spiritual pride, um, religious fundamentalism, Christian anti-intellectualism, all these uh, themes that appear in this story. You might despise some of these things, fair enough. They come into the, play into this story, but they do so in such a way that whatever we disdain about religion, there's also a beautiful quality about religion, about the Christian faith, which does not sanitize our lives into a fairy tale story but sees in our ugliness, in our errors, in our shame, something redeemable. To understand redemption, we need to see God's salvation of his people much more than our sins are forgiven. Yes, that is true, but I don't think that's enough. And I sure don't think that, uh, it, that tells the full story of redemption. It's not merely forgiveness of sins but rectification that gives us a stronger ground to say with a voice of thanksgiving, salvation belongs to the Lord. To clarify, God doesn't merely forgive us. It's all good. I won't hold it against you. He makes right what we have made wrong. In that story, um, everything that destroys creates. The fire that burns refines, reveals, and restores. The water that drowns becomes the water of baptism which gives new birth. And then Jonah chapter two, everything that destroys creates. Everything that Jonah has done wrong, God will make right. The great fish, is a sea monster. Every instance of a sea monster in the Old Testament refers to judgment. But God appoints this fish for Jonah's salvation. The waters of death become, in a sense, Jonah's baptismal waters of new life. The belly of Sheol, where the dead typically rest, becomes a life-giving furnace room of prayer where Jonah would call out to his God and God would hear Jonah. And in Jonah chapter two, we see more definitively that Jonah cannot escape the destiny God set out for him. He flounders in his rebellion and he falls even, he fails even at death, jumping into the deep sea and ending up on dry land. Now, between the sea and the land is an important lesson I don't think we should overlook. In fact, the whole chapter is given to it, and that is this great fish and between the swallowing and the spitting out of the fish is an important lesson we cannot overlook, and that is the belly of the fish. What does it mean for the belly of the fish to be Jonah's salvation? There's a lesson from the belly of the fish that I believe all of us needs to learn. Because we are all, Jenna, we all run from God. We all struggle with holiness. And in our spiritual journey, we all go back before we go forward. We all fall down before we rise up. And the lesson is simply, um, and for lack of a better term, confinement. Uh, I try to, it's not the best word. Quarantine was another option. I don't think that was what I wanted to go, but we'll just use this word confinement. I'll speak a little bit abstractly and get a little bit more practical, but Jonah receives the gift of confinement. Confinement. Now first, confinement in the belly of the fish is the opposite of Tarshish, now Tarshish is where Jonah was like, I'm not going to Nineveh, I'm gonna go to Tarshish. Tarshish represents our autonomy, our autonomous rebellion. It is a place where our idols are imagined, but like every idol, it never delivers. It promises freedom, but freedom is only an illusion in Tarshish. Tarshish is idolatrous salvation. It never saves us from the good we are called to do. The belly of the fish represents our humanity, the humanity of our creaturely dependence. The first chapter of that story, uh, a young Tarwater is, um, you can't be any poorer than dead. And the belly teaches us that we can't be any more needy than dead in that belly. With the ability to escape, we now have the ability to escape uh, just about any physical or temporary demands in life. Um, Spatial and temporal confinement reminds us that God is with us, especially when we run from him. Second, confinement in the belly of the fish is a place of revivification where our faith is reawakened. Um, Justice issues aside, it was in confinement where many of our great voices uh, in in Christian history um, were birthed, Uh, Bonhoeffer, Uh, and his letters in prison. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. uh, and his letter from a prison. Uh, The Apostle Paul and uh, the Apostle John writing inspired scriptures from prison and from exile. Confinement can be, um, it can be the life-deepening and reality-creating time and space we need as we find ourselves caught in a life of self-absorption extravagant self-indulgence, or addictive cycles of sin and shame. Confined to the reality of our human condition and where our ego finds no one else to impress or even to be compared to, we find a life that is not diminished, but rather is deepened. It is on this point that I find Eugene Peterson, his book on Jonah, um, helpful. He speaks of Jonah's time in the belly as his spiritual ascesis. Now, I did not know that word uh, before I read this book, but he says, this is his ascesis. It's like an athlete that enters into an intense season of training, deliberately removing, or more precisely, delaying his comforts through an acute training regimen. Ascesis is achieved in the belly of the fish, and for Jonah, it's painful, it's traumatic, but it's a good and necessary condition for his spiritual reawakening. Third, confinement in the belly of the fish presses us to be with God in prayer, to address God with our brutal honesty, uh, which is hard but very freeing. Now much has been said about um, how bad this prayer is. Um, Jonah's sincerity has been questioned Uh, the omission of any kind of um, confession of sin has been noted, Um, but I'm not sure if scrutinizing his prayer is a point here. Uh, Despite its imperfections, I find this prayer a quite beautiful one. Um, You know that kid that goes to school um, reluctantly? He hates school. But he has to go, so he does. He doesn't work hard. Uh, He doesn't turn in his stuff on time, usually. Doesn't study much. But he still manages to learn a little bit because he still goes to school. That's kind of like Jonah. Jonah's not a guy who prays regularly. Anyone can pray in despair, in deep trouble, in an emergency. Jonah, however, is a student of the Psalms. Augustine called the Psalms a school for prayer. It's where we learn to pray. And for Jonah, all those Psalms he was forced to memorize as a kid, he is finally learning them. Not a word from this prayer is original. They're all kind of cut and pasted from the Psalms. When we matriculate at the Institute of the Psalms, we learn there how to get out of ourselves, how to save our prayers from self-absorption and to reorient ourselves to be heading back to Nineveh on the way of following God in our prayers. We also learn in the School of the Psalms that whenever our wayward behavior has us disoriented, whenever our doubts fill us with the wonders of Tarshish, that before we head back to Nineveh, we must look to Jerusalem toward the temple, towards corporate worship as people brought up to that blessed and confined sanctuary of the heavenly realm. Now to suggest that confinement in the belly of the fish reorients us away from Tarshish, that it revivifies us in our faith, uh, that it schools us in prayer, to suggest these things is to say that death creates, that the true essence of the Christian life and the only way to follow Christ is to die to ourselves. Jesus said that unless the kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Whoever loves their life will lose it, but whoever hates, that is, denies their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, it is, it is this lesson of dying to ourselves, that the old self dies and the new self, the one in Christ, can live. It is this lesson of self-denial, which can be, self-denial can be abused, it can be weaponized. Um, Confinement is a gift, but it's, it's a gift in that it provides the conditions for us to die to ourselves. We're not talking about some monastic special holy order Uh, 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 an ascetic lifestyle of extreme um, self-denial of the material, or even some sort of unjust confinement in a prison cell. Uh, What's great about the belly of the fish is that it's always temporary. Nineveh is not temporary, that is our parish. The belly is always temporary, lasted three days, but, it is always regular. It's a regular part of our Christian life. Each of us have opportunities to cultivate Jesus' call to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and to follow him, and to do so through the gift of confinement. It's something we need. It's something we need In a hurried life, we need the confinement of slowness. In a a distracted life, we need the confinement of solitude. In a materialistic life, we need the confinement of simplicity. In an idolatrous or persecuted life, we need the confinement of sanctuary. In a restless life we need the confinement of Sabbath. In a prayerless life we need to learn the Psalms. Slowness it's knowing our limits. It's knowing that we need to first be shepherded by the Good Shepherd Christ before we shepherd others. It is cultivating patience, deliberately choosing to wait sometimes, living life in the slow lane. Solitude is, it's simply alone time. It couples very well with silence. Uh, it's a quiet place in your life that you can go to, knowing that God is in that place. Simplicity is, it's more than tidying up your life, It's learning contentment. Um, It may mean for some of us, as Christ says, to sell our possessions and give to the poor. Sanctuary is embracing our pilgrim life, always orienting ourselves towards Jerusalem, towards that heavenly place which Christ, by his Spirit, has brought us. Realizing that as we are embodied, with Christ in the church. Sabbath is, perhaps uh, if you're a New Year's resolution person, it's resolving to learn one thing this year, and that is nothing, one day every seven. The Psalms, it's learning to pray, understanding that these Psalms were, uh, understanding these Psalms as they were written, deepening our awareness of God, our dependence through prayer. It is perhaps taking Jesus at his word that when we pray, we go into a closet and pray. Whatever discipline we might need in our life, whatever form of ascesis you might put into practice, Consider the belly of the fish. The belly is a, it's a pivot from Tarshish to Nineveh. It's a pivot from death to life. It teaches us that the only way to live is to die to ourselves. And it also reminds us that salvation is dark and disturbing because it always involves death. It is not only dark and, disturbing, it is traumatic. Now, the belly of the fish, to say that the belly of the fish is our place of salvation is a paradox. Um, Because in it, we are saved through death, but we never actually die. The belly of the fish is God's gracious, salvific, gift in the form of a death simulator. We learn there how to die, but we don't actually die, we actually live. Um, Waterboarding, uh, which has been used by some government agencies for some time, is a death simulator, but it is a torturous one. Running water up a victim's nose and mouth continually so that they cannot breathe induces a physiological, psychological process of drowning, it feels like dying. The crucifixion is like waterboarding. It is torturous, but it's no simulator. It's not meant just to torture, it's meant to execute. What we cannot forget about the crucifixion is that Jesus actually died. Not only was he killed, he lay dead. Between the crucifixion and the resurrection was burial and death. Before Easter and after Good Friday was Holy Saturday. The Christian tradition of Holy Saturday is where in the heart of the earth, Jesus' body lay and the process of decomposition begins. The Christian story begins with a week where for six days God powerfully and personally creates, and on the seventh day he rests. And in Holy Week on the seventh day, God in the person of Jesus lay dead. How can that Jesus be God? How can we know that Jesus is God? Well, in Matthew chapter 12, uh, some of the scribes and Pharisees, they come to Jesus and say, "We, we wish to see a sign from you. A sign comes immediately from heaven. Miracles occur immediately on earth. People saw miracles after miracles. They were sick and tired of it. They were not impressed. They wanted instead a sign, something less ambiguous than a healing, something direct, immediate, straight from heaven. Give us a sign. Show us that you are the Messiah. Jesus responds that it is not a good sign when people ask for signs, but I'll give you one exception, and that is the sign of Jonah. And he's speaking about being in the belly of the fish for three days. Jesus was dead. He died so that when we seek to die to ourselves and live for Christ, we will never die. The belly of the fish is, I wouldn't say it's a wonderful, pleasant place to be but it is a good place. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we thank you that um, uh, out of your goodness, you saved us um, when we were down. Before we got our act together, before we even thought about getting our act together, when we were down uh, as deep as the oceans can go, you saved us, you rescued us, and you did so so that we can get back up and live the life that you have called us to. Pray for each one of us here this morning that we would see in your great salvation, your love for us, for your church, that you do not let us just kind of forget kind of all the things we've done wrong, but you get our attention. You get our attention in a very gracious and good way. So help us to learn these lessons um, out of gratitude for you. We thank you for Jesus who actually did die. We thank you for him who gives us life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.